Well, good morning, everybody. Today is the day of Yom Kippur, a very critical date in the biblical calendar. If we look all the way back to the Garden of Eden, the Jewish sages say this is the day on which Adam and Eve defied God and ate from the forbidden tree which caused the fall of mankind, sin entered the world, death entered the world. And it was this same day that about 2,000 years ago, our Messiah Yeshua, after fasting for 40 days in the wilderness, was tempted by Satan and prevailed. As Adam failed, Messiah prevailed. And Satan was defeated. According to the Jewish sages, on Yom Teruah, the gates of heaven open, the door opens, the court seated, and the books are open, as it says in Revelation chapter 4, verse 1. And that for the ten days between the Feast of Trumpets and the Day of Atonement, the courts sit in heaven in judgment, recording into the book of the righteous and the book of the wicked. And they say it's not until Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, today that the books are closed, the judgments are sealed, and the door to heaven closes. So that makes today a very interesting day. But now we've got to go and look at the scriptures. But first, what must we do at every feast and festival day, even if it's a fast day? We must talk about the names, themes, and idioms. What do we know about this day? First of all, it is Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. But in the scripture, to be honest, it's Kippurim. Atonements, plural. Because when the high priest goes into the Holy of Holies, it's not without the shed blood. Where he makes atonement for the tabernacle. He makes atonement for himself. He makes atonement for the people. He makes atonement for all kinds of things. Because that blood of goats, bulls, and calves cannot take away sin. That's why there must be atonement after atonement. But the blood of Messiah, does it cover over sin? No, it takes the sin away. So the first name is the Yom Kippur or Day of Atonement. But it's also called Face to Face. Let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 13 and see why it's called face-to-face. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. She said, what was that reference again? It was 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 12. It says, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face-to-face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know just as I also am known. So the Apostle Paul makes reference to the fact that Yom Kippur is referred to as face to face. Because that is the only day of the year that anyone was permitted to enter the Holy of Holies. And who was that? The two drunken sons of the high priest? No, we know that didn't go very well. Only the high priest is permitted to enter the Holy of Holies and only one day a year, and that's on Yom Kippur. And not 
before the shedding of blood to make atonement for himself, and not before he put a censer of incense into the Holy of Holies so that the smoke would completely occlude the mercy seat. So while the high priest would speak to God face to face, he could not look upon the face of God. It's also called the day. If I say in that day, what day is it? Day of the Lord. If I say in the day, or in the great day, that's referring to Yom Kippur. Let's go to Jude chapter 1, which is kind of redundant. Jude. Verse 6. And the angels who did not keep their proper domain but left their own abode. Referring to, remember in Genesis chapter 6, the sons of God came down and took women of human origin all they, that they pleased. After the flood, there were some angels who came down and did that again, which is how we get Goliath as he faces down David. So that's the angels we're talking about here. The angels did not keep their proper domain, but left their own abode. He has reserved an everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day. The great day being the day of atonement. So not only does judgment of people end at Yom Kippur, but the judgment of the angels at the great white throne is going to take place on Yom Kippur. It's a day of judgment. So what began the first day of Elul? A 40-day period called Teshuvah, which means what? Repentance. Why the 40 days of repentance? It's to try and get ourselves right in the eyes of the Lord before the books are closed. So look also at Revelation chapter 6, verse 17. What day does Messiah return in Revelation 19.11 for the battle of Armageddon? It is Yom Kippur. And in Revelation 6.17 it's called, For the great day of his wrath has come. And who is able to stand? The great day of his wrath is a reference to Yom Kippur. And then Revelation 16, 14. Another reference to the battle of Armageddon, which in Revelation 16 is at hand. Verse 14. For they are spirits of demons performing signs which go out to the kings of the earth and of the whole world to gather them to the battle of that great day of God Almighty. That great day referring to Yom Kippur when the day of the battle of Armageddon arrives. The next name, theme, or idiom is the fast. The fast, or some people call it the fast day. It's the only fast commanded by God. 
We see that fast in Acts chapter 27. Verse 9. Acts chapter 27. Verse 9. There's a word that I had never noticed before, I don't think, that is capitalized in verse 9. Which word is that? That is fast. Verse 9, now when much time had been spent and sailing was now dangerous because the fast was already over, Paul advised them. So what happens when we get past the time of the Day of Atonement to the weather in sailing in the Mediterranean? It gets very stormy. It gets very disastrous. So they try to sail only in the warmer months when the weather is much better. It's also called the Shofar Hagadol or the Great Shofar. Let's go to Matthew chapter 24. Matthew chapter 24. Matthew chapter 24, verse 29. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the tribulation period ends at the Battle of Armageddon on what day? On Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. The sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven. Then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. That's Revelation 19.11. And he will send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet. That great sound of a trumpet is the shofar hagadol, the great trumpet. And they will gather together as elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. Most prophecy teachers who incorrectly believe that the rapture is after the tribulation rely on this verse. This verse is not talking about the rapture and gathering people to heaven. It's talking about the regathering of Israel back to the land from Isaiah chapter 11. So let's turn over to Isaiah chapter 11. Why did Messiah not talk about the rapture in Matthew 24? There's two reasons. First, the apostles didn't ask. He was answering questions. They didn't ask about it. And number two, they didn't ask about it because if you had said church, what would they have said? The what? There wasn't a church yet. They didn't know what that was. So that's why they didn't ask about the rapture of the church. They didn't know there was going to be a church. They were still a little slow at that point. But Isaiah chapter 11, verse 11 says, And in that day, what day? Day of the Lord, there should be a root of Jesse. Who's that root of Jesse? That's Yeshua, our Messiah. Wait a minute. Messiah descends from Jesse. How can he be a root of Jesse? How can he come before Jesse? 
because he's God from all eternity. That's what this is trying to tell us. He's just told us in 11.1, there shall come forth the rod from the stem of Jesse, but that shoot from the stump of Jesse is also the, the root from which Jesse grows. Who shall stand as a banner to the people. That word banner refers to a military guide on where when the trumpet blows all the troops gather around their particular units guide on for the gentiles shall seek him that's messiah and his resting place shall be glorious what is that resting place referring to in hebrews 4 9 keep a finger here go to hebrews 4 9 Hebrews 4.9. I know you guys are saying, if you just give us a little more time, we'd answer these questions. But I'm excited. Hebrews 4.9. There remains, therefore, a rest for the people of God. That word rest in Greek is sabbatismos, and it means specifically and only a Sabbath rest. So that is the resting place. Let's go back to Isaiah chapter 11, verse 10. For the Gentiles shall seek him, and his resting place, his Sabbath rest, shall be glorious. It shall come to pass in that day that the Lord shall set his hand again the second time to recover the remnant of his people who are left. This is what Matthew 24 refers to. From Assyria and Egypt, from Pathros and Cush, from Alam and Shinar, from Hamat and the islands of the sea. He will set up a banner for the nations as the Gentiles and will assemble the outcasts of Israel. To assemble is to gather. So he's bringing all the believers to himself, whether they are born Jewish or Gentile. They've been saved by faith. And he will gather together the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. That brings a tear to my eye. I hope it does yours. Israel was dispersed in 722 BCE by the Assyrians and they finally get to come home along with those from Judah that were dispersed by Rome in 70 common era 70 AD as well as the believing Gentiles the last name theme or idiom for your notes is Neilah N-E-I-L-A-H Hebrew word Neilah it's the closing of the gates Go to Revelation chapter 4, verse 1. Revelation chapter 4, verse 1. Neela has got a double meaning, of course, as many things do in the scripture. The first is in Revelation chapter 4, verse 1. After these things, what things? The church age. Church age ends with the rapture and resurrection. After these things I looked and behold a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I heard was like a trumpet speaking with me saying come up here and I'll show you things which must take place after this. Immediately I was in the spirit and behold a throne set in heaven and one sat on the throne. So the door to heaven opens at the feast of trumpets. It does not close, according to the ancient rabbis, until Neolah at the end of Yom Kippur. 
I've heard many theologians say that once the rapture and resurrection comes, no one else can be saved. Because the Holy Spirit's taken from the earth, and without the Holy Spirit, there can be no salvation. Turn to Revelation 7. They are wrong when they teach that. Revelation 7, verse 9. After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude which no one could number of all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes, with palm branches in their hand, and crying out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. In verse 13, they're asking, Who are all these people? Then one of the elders answered, saying to me, Who are these arrayed in white robes, and where do they come from? Does that word answered look like it's kind of misplaced? Nobody's asked a question. He's asking the question. This is a way you know that the original language is not Greek, but Hebrew. Because the word answer doesn't necessarily mean you're replying to a question. It just means it's your turn to speak. Who are these arrayed in white robes? Where do they come from? And I said to him, sir, you know, which means I ain't got a clue, boss. So he said to me, these are ones who come out of the great tribulation and washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. They got saved during the tribulation period. That door does not close until Messiah returns for the battle of Armageddon. At that point, what happens to all those that are not saved? They die. You don't get to see Messiah return and then say, can I change my vote and remove the mark? The answer is no. The decision's been made. Okay, let's move on. It is considered the holiest day of the year for several reasons. One, it's the only day that anyone could enter the Holy of Holies, and it was only the high priest. And only after going through the ritual of Leviticus chapter 16. It was the only day that the high priest said God's name aloud. No one pronounced the name of God except for the high priest once a year in the Holy of Holies in a whisper. As he did that, the people outside, they were laying prostrate facing the temple. As he goes in, crying out, Baruch Shem Kavod, Malchuto, Leolam Va'ed. Let me say that slower for those of you who are taking notes. Baruch means blessed. Shem means name. Kavod means holy. Malchuto means what? His kingdom. Leolam is forever. Va'ed and ever. So Baruch, Shem, Kavod. Malchuto, Leolam, Va'ed. Do those words sound familiar now? From where? That's right. Okay, you got it. And it's the only fast among the Moedim of Leviticus chapter 23. It's the only fast commanded by God in the scripture. And that helps us identify one trumpet from another. But first, having finished the introduction now, with there still being just a few minutes left, 
Let's go to Psalm chapter 40, verse 7, and begin where we must begin all Moedim celebrations. Today's not a feast, but it is a celebration. If your sins have been washed clean in the shed blood of our Messiah Yeshua, you should celebrate today. Psalm chapter 40, verse 7. Let me quote from the King James Version. Lo, I come. In the volume of the book, it is written of me. So this Bible that we have from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22 teaches one and one only theme. And that is the salvation of fallen mankind the redemption from our sins through the death, burial, and resurrection of our Messiah, Yeshua. So that we who are sinners, and that's all of us, can have the right, the power, and the privilege to become the children of the true and living God. What a beautiful thing that is. Let's go to 1 Thessalonians 5 to see why it's so important to study and to celebrate God's appointed times. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. In the New Testament, all the T's are together and they're in alphabetical order. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. I know you'll think it's a brilliant observation, but it follows 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 teaches about the rapture and the resurrection. And ends with the words, comfort one another with these words. But in chapter 5 it begins, but concerning the times and seasons, those Greek words, times and seasons, refer to the appointed times of the Lord. Passover, when Messiah died, unleavened bread when he was buried, the feast of first fruits when he was raised from the dead. The feast of weeks when the Holy Spirit came in Acts chapter 2 and indwelt the believers. The Feast of Trumpets, which teaches about the rapture and the resurrection. The Day of Atonement, which teaches God's judgment, which is ultimately carried out for mankind when the return of Messiah finishes the Battle of Armageddon. And then the Feast of Tabernacles, which will be celebrated by all people forever because it celebrates and remembers the establishment of God's kingdom on earth. But it says, but concerning the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I should write to you. Why? Because they keep them year in and year out. But these are not Jews. Why do non-Jews keep the feasts and festivals? Because Paul taught them to. Keep a finger here. Turn back to 1 Corinthians. First Corinthians. First Corinthians is all about Passover. But in First Corinthians chapter 5, the first thing Paul does in First Corinthians chapter 5 is rebuke the church because they have people inside committing great sins and they're tolerating them. And Paul said, no, 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 no. And he says in verse 6, your glorying is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? That is by tolerating the sin in their midst, it will spread. 
Therefore purge out the old leaven that you may be a new lump. We've always wanted to be lumpy. Since you truly are unleavened, leaven's a picture of sin. For indeed, Messiah, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. That word Passover, Pesach in Hebrew, refers to the lamb. Was sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast. That is the feast of Passover. Not with all leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So the Apostle Paul taught the Gentile believers to keep the appointed times of the Lord. Back to 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 2. For you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. That would say we have no idea when it's coming. How many of you know what day a thief's going to break into your house at night? You don't. But keep reading. Verse 3, for when they say, not you, but when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman and they shall not escape. When will they say peace and safety? When the false Messiah confirms that seven-year treaty of peace. But you, verse 4, but you, brethren, are not in darkness that this day should overtake you as a thief. Because if you understand the prophetic implications of those seven appointed times of the Lord, you cannot be taken unawares like a thief in the night. Now let's go back to Leviticus 23 and see which of the appointed times of the Lord we're dealing with today. Leviticus chapter 23. Some of you are thinking out there, how many times do we have to go over the same scriptures? And the answer is, if the Lord calls us home today, just one more time. <laughs> Leviticus 23, verse 1, and the Lord. See how the word Lord is spelled? That's the tetragrammaton, those four Hebrew letters, yod heh The Lord spoke to Moses saying, what does the word saying mean? It's a quote. What did Messiah tell us in Matthew 4, 4? Man does not live by bread alone, but by what? Every word that comes through the lips of God. Every word that is God breathed. When you see, and the Lord spoke to Moses saying, these words are God breathed. Theonutas. Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, the feast of the Lord. It's not feast. What is it? It's the Moedim, the appointed times, the appointments of the Lord which you shall proclaim to be holy convocations, that is, rehearsals of things Messiah will do in either his first or second coming. These are my appointed times. This one in particular is down in verse 26. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Whose lips did these words pass through? These are God's own lips. Also, the tenth day of the seventh month, that's today, shall be the day of atonement. It shall be a holy convocation for you. What's that mean, holy convocation? It's a rehearsal of something Messiah will do in his first or second coming. In this case, it's his second coming when he returns in Revelation 19.11 for the battle of Armageddon. You shall afflict your souls and offer an offering made by fire to the Lord. And you shall do no work on that same day. 
for it's the day of atonement, to make atonement for you before the Lord your God. Notice on this high Sabbath, the language is a little different. Sometimes it says no servile work. This one simply says no work. Hmm. Servile work is work designed to increase your wealth, your income, the wheat in your barn, the fatness of your cattle, etc. No work is none. If you look at the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, it says no work except that which is necessary to prepare the meal, which allows you to cook on that day. Can we cook today? No, because today's a fast day. What do you cook for a fast day? Nothing. That's right. Everybody's looking over there at the coffee pot going, the poor thing's turned off. Yeah, it's turned off. Okay. Verse 29, for any person who's not afflicted in soul on that same day shall be cut off from his people. To be afflicted in soul includes fast, but that's not the main purpose of the word to afflict the soul. The main purpose of afflicting the soul is repentance. It's the last opportunity of the 40 days to look inside and say, have I still retained some sin that I've not let go of yet? And it's the last of the 40 days when we can repent and turn to God and say what? Forgive me, and I'm not going to do it anymore. I heard a really neat teaching this week on YouTube where a theologian was saying, you know, for, for many, many years, we've looked at the word repentance as if it means to say, I'm sorry. Mm -hmm. But that's not what repentance is. Repentance is change your heart, change your life. Do 180 degrees, turn about away from sin, shun sin, turn to God, embrace God. As it says in Deuteronomy chapter 30. So let's go to Deuteronomy 30. In Deuteronomy 28, it says we're going to be sent into captivity. Yeah, that happened. But chapter 30 is, yeah, but you will be restored. You will be gathered back. That's what we read in Matthew chapter 24. That's what we read in Isaiah chapter 11. That's the fulfillment of Deuteronomy 30 verse 1. Now, just scratch it out make it end. It shall come to pass when all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse, that is when we've been blessed in the land and when we've been sent into captivity to finally learn our lesson, which I've set before you and you call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord your God drives you. That's the third captivity. That's the diaspora. Never before was Israel spread throughout the entire world. Would you believe there's even Jews in America today? That's as far away from Israel as you can get. Verse 2, and you return to the Lord your God. That is Yom Kippur's main emphasis, is return, repent, come back to God. And obey his voice, Shema B'Kolol. You have not returned to the Lord if you're still breaking God's commandments. If you're still walking in sin and lawlessness. If you think you've returned and you're still walking in sin, disobeying God, then you've confused yourself somehow. 
according to all that I command you today. Oh, darn it. It doesn't say according to the ones you pick and choose, does it? No. According to all that I command you today, you and your children, with all your heart and with all your soul, it's not just a mental thing. It's not just a, gee, I, I better say some words today so I don't get cast in a lake of fire come judgment day. No, you must turn with all your heart and with all your soul. That is circumcision of the heart. That is true repentance and return to God. Verse 3, and that the Lord your God will bring you back from captivity and have compassion on you and gather you again from all the nations where the Lord your God has scattered you. Again, that's Isaiah 11, it's Matthew 24. If any of you are driven out to the farthest parts under heaven, from there the Lord your God will gather you, and from there he will bring you. Then the Lord your God will bring you to the land which your fathers possessed, and you shall possess it. He shall prosper you and multiply you more than your fathers, and the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. Also the Lord your God will put all these curses on your enemies and on those who hate you who persecuted you. Yeah, that's the great tribulation ending in Armageddon. And you will again obey the voice of the Lord and do all his commandments I command you today. All right, let's go back and look at Leviticus chapter 16 at what happened historically and will soon happen again. Because that temple will soon be rebuilt. How many of you a couple days ago watched a YouTube video that was a prophecy update, but it was from the UK. Every couple of minutes they kept saying, this is from the UK. They showed the rabbis in Israel inspecting a red heifer, finding it to be a completely red and, and totally acceptable red heifer. And that red heifer had horns about four inches long. That is not an eight-year-old calf. Not an eight-month-old calf, sorry. Ah, exciting times. Leviticus chapter 16. Now the Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron. What did they do? They went into the Holy of Holies because they thought they could just burn incense because it'd be cool. Not cool. When they offered profane fire before the Lord and he died, they died. And the Lord said to Moses, tell Aaron your brother not to come at just any time into the holy place. It shouldn't be the holy place. It's the holy of holies. The Kodesh HaKodeshim. Inside the veil. So the holy place, the HaKodesh, is where the menorah is and the table of showbread. The priests often work in there. They have to work in there every day. Then there's a veil that separates the holy place from the holy of holies. The only thing in the Holy of Holies is the Ark of the Covenant. At least it was when we had the temple still standing. So that's what they're talking about here. Before the mercy seat. The mercy seat is the keeperah, the lid on the Ark. It's where the blood is placed on the Day of Atonement. For I will appear in the cloud above the mercy seat. What happens if a sinful man looks face to face to God? He dies. Raiders of the Lost Ark, yeah. 
If you're a member, turn to Isaiah chapter 6. Don't lose your place in Leviticus. But in Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah is caught up to the throne of God in a vision. He has a vision of Revelation chapter 4, verse 1. So he was the first to get to see the Lord sit on his throne in judgment. Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1. Before I do Isaiah 6, verse 1, something just jumped off the page, and that's chapter 5, verse 24, which is about the tribulation period and people falling under God's wrath. It says, Therefore, as the fire devours the stubble and the flame consumes the chaff, so their root will be as rottenness and their blossom will ascend like dust because they have rejected the Torah of the Lord of hosts and despised the word of the Holy One of Israel. Why are they falling under God's judgment in the tribulation? Because they've rejected the Torah. The Torah was given by the Lord of hosts. And they've despised the word of the Holy One of Israel. Both terms, Lord of hosts and Holy One of Israel, refer to our Messiah, Yeshua. Am I getting too far away from the microphone? Let me get back here a little bit. So Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. This is a vision. Sitting on a throne. That's Revelation 4.1. High and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. So where is that throne? Where is the throne of Messiah? It's in the heavenly temple. Above it stood seraphim. Each one had six wings. With two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet. With two he flew. One cried to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. So now we know the Lord sitting on the throne in verse 1 is the Lord of hosts, is our Messiah, Yeshua. Verse 4, And the posts of the door were shaken by the voice of him who cried out, and the house was filled with smoke. So I said, Woe is me, I am undone. What's undone mean? I'm a dead man. Because I'm a man of unclean lips, I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Okay, back to Leviticus chapter 16. When the high priest goes into the Holy of Holies, the Lord will be sitting on the throne. Will the high priest look face to face into God's face? The answer is no. Let's read about it. So verse 2 says, lest he die, for I will appear in the cloud above the mercy seat. Verse 3, thus Aaron shall come into the holy place, that's the holy of holies, with the blood of a young bull as a sin offering, and of a ram as a burnt offering. It always catches my eye when I see, what must the high priest sacrifice for his own sin? A bull. What did Aaron create at Mount Sinai? The golden calf, the bull. Verse 4, he shall put the holy linen tunic and the linen trousers on his body. He shall be girded with the linen sash, with the linen turban he shall be attired. What do you know about every one of those garments? 
made of the same fabric. They're white. They're made of the same fabric, but they're white. They're snow white. They're like the white robes of the saints. They indicate purity. They indicate cleanness, right standing before God. They indicate that repentance has been conducted. These are holy garments. Therefore he shall wash his body in water and put them on. What is that washing his body in water? Is he taking a bath? No, that's the mikvah. The tevilah, the immersion in water that today some people call baptism. Verse 5, what does that baptism show anyway? Whether you call it immersion, baptism, it shows repentance. It shows a new man, a change of status. I put the sins behind me. I walk anew. He shall take from the congregation of the children of Israel two kids of the goats as a sin offering and one ram as a burnt offering. Aaron shall offer the bull as a sin offering, which is for himself. Who made the golden calf? The high priest. So the high priest descendant, being the new high priest, must still sacrifice the bull for himself. And make atonement for himself and for his household. So that's the first atonement made. First is for him, the second is for his household. He shall take the two goats and present them before the Lord at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. That is on the east side of the tabernacle, or later the temple. Then Aaron shall cast lots for the two goats. Do you know what lots are? Somebody say dice. No, it's not dice. There is a basket that he reaches into, and there are two golden lots. They open up. When you pull them out, when you reach in, you can't feel around for the letters to know which is which. They open up. One will say, La Adonai, to the Lord. The other will say, La Azazel, which is to the scapegoat. Until Messiah was crucified, the lot, La Adonai, for the Lord, always came up in the right hand. After Messiah's death, burial, and resurrection, it only came up in the left hand. Just one of those many things that changed after Messiah was crucified, buried, and resurrected. So verse 8, Then Aaron shall cast lots for the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other lot for the scapegoat. We call it scapegoat. Lazazel's a demon. And Aaron shall bring the goat on which the Lord's lot fell and offer it as a sin offering. So the one that would always come up in the high priest's right hand is the one that will be sacrificed to the Lord until Messiah's resurrection. But the goat in which the lot fell to be the scapegoat shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement upon it. That is, they would put their hands upon the goat and confess their sins over it, symbolically transferring their sins from themselves to the goat. And to let it go as the scapegoat into the wilderness. What's the word wilderness in Hebrew? Who knows? Midbar. What's the other way to translate it? It's desert. And the wilderness, desert, those are equivalent terms. In Hebraic thought, the wilderness, the desert, is the dwelling place of demons. So in a picture, they're sending the sins of mankind back to Satan from which they came. Who first tempted mankind in the Garden of Eden? Satan did. So we're giving them back, symbolically. And Aaron shall bring the bull of the sin offering, which is for himself, and make atonement for himself and for his house, and shall kill the bull as the sin offering, which is for himself. 
They shall take a censer full of burning coals of fire from the altar before the Lord. There are two altars. There's the altar of sacrifice. There's the altar of incense. Where are these coming from? The altar of sacrifice. Where he's just sacrificed the bull, etc. Yeah. So these coals are from the fire that consumed the sin offering. With his hands full of sweet incense beaten fine and bring it inside the veil. That is, he will stick his hand through the veil and put the censer. And what happens, of course, when he puts the incense on the censer is the smoke will fill up the Holy of Holies. He shall put the incense on the fire before the Lord, that the cloud of incense may cover the mercy seat that is on the testimony, lest he die. Why the lest he die? Because if the room is not filled with smoke and he looks upon the face of God, he's a dead man. Verse 14, shall take some of the blood of the bull and sprinkle it with his finger on the mercy seat on the east side. And before the mercy seat, he shall sprinkle some of the blood with his finger seven times. Seven times. What does the blood represent? Represents Messiah's blood. Seven times represents 7,000 years from creation in Genesis 1 until the new heavens and the new earth of Revelation 22. How long has Messiah been our Savior, our Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world? Verse 15, then he shall kill the goat of the sin offering. Notice we're getting some repetition, but the repetition is to fill in the smaller details, which is for the people. Bring his blood inside the veil. Do with that blood as he did with the blood of the bull and sprinkle it on the mercy seat and before the mercy seat. So first he has to sprinkle blood for himself, now for the people. So he shall make atonement for the holy place, that's the holy of holies, because of the uncleanness of the children of Israel and because of their transgressions for all their sins. And so he shall do for the tabernacle of meeting which remains among them in the midst of their uncleanness. Why does he have to do this year after year after year? Because the people sin year after year after year. Does the blood of these animals take away sin? No, the word kippur, atonement, means to cover over. It's so that when God looks down from heaven, he sees not the sins, but he sees the blood covering the sins and defers judgment until the coming of Messiah. Verse 17, there should be no man in the tabernacle of meeting when he goes in and make atonement in the holy place until he comes out. No one can touch him. No one can help him. According to the ancients, as he's going to the holy of holies, he must cry out, do not touch me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Until he comes out, that he may make atonement for himself, for his household, and for all the assembly of Israel. He shall go out to the altar that is before the Lord and make atonement for it. See, there's many atonements, but they're all made by what? Blood. And shall take some of the blood of the bull, some of the blood of the goat, and put it on the horns of the altar all around. The horns are the high spires on the corners. Then he shall sprinkle some of the blood on it with his finger seven times, cleanse it and consecrate it or set it apart from the uncleanness of the children of Israel. 
When he's made an end of atoning for the holy place, the tabernacle meeting and the altar, he shall bring the live goat. See, it hasn't happened yet. This is just more detail. Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat. Confess over it all the iniquities of the children of Israel and all their transgressions concerning all their sins, putting them on the head of the goat, and shall send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a suitable man. That's taken the sins right back to Satan where they came from. The goat shall bear in itself all their iniquities to an uninhabited land, and he shall release the goat in the wilderness. Again, from ancient sources, not from the Bible. As they're leading the goat out to the wilderness, they have a shiny-colored or blood-colored cloth tied around the neck of the goat. When they get to the place of the release, they would take that cloth off the goat, tie it to a tree, not the goat, the shiny-colored cloth, and push the goat off. And as the goat was torn to pieces as it fell, that shiny-colored cloth would, cloth would turn white, they say to indicate that God had accepted the atonement and had forgiven Israel. But that's not in the scriptures. That's not in the scriptures. Um, there are references to it. First, let me say that from the time of Messiah's death, burial, and resurrection, for the 40 years till the temple fell, the cloth never turned white again. And this is written not by Messianic Jews, but by non-Messianic. Go to the book of Isaiah. Keep your fingers in Leviticus if I forgot to say that. Isaiah chapter 1, verse 18. This is a reference to the Yom Kippur. Come now and let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they're red like crimson, they shall be as wool. The if is, back in verses 16 and 17, if you truly repent, then your sins, which are like that shiny color cloth, will turn white. Back to Leviticus 16. Verse 23. Then Aaron shall come into the tabernacle of meeting, shall take off the linen garments which he put on when he went into the holy place, and shall leave them there. And he shall wash his body with water in a holy place, <clears throat> put on his garments, come out and offer his burnt offering and the burnt offering of the people, and make atonement for himself and for the people. The fat of the sin offering he shall burn on the altar. And he who released the goat is the scapegoat, Laazazel, shall wash his clothes and bathe his body in water, and afterward he may come into the camp. The bull for the sin offering and the goat for the sin offering, whose blood was brought in to make atonement in the holy place, shall be carried outside the camp. And they shall burn in the fire their skins, their flesh, and their offal. Then he who burns them shall wash his clothes and bathe his body in water. Afterward he may come into the camp. This shall be a statute, does it say, for a little while? Forever for you. In the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month, you shall afflict your souls. Again, the main emphasis there is repentance. And do no work at all. Whether a native of your own country or a stranger 
who dwells among you. Who's the stranger who dwells among you? The Ger HaSha'ar, the believer who's been grafted in. So Jew and Gentile are both addressed in this verse. Verse 30, for on that day, the priest shall make atonement for you to cleanse you that you may be clean from all your sins before the Lord. Notice the phrase, on that day. That tells you there's an end time significance to this celebration. That there will come a day when God will cleanse sin entirely. Verse 31, it is a Sabbath of solemn rest for you, and you shall afflict your souls. It is a statute forever. Let's go to Leviticus chapter 25. Leviticus chapter 25 is about what? The year of Jubilee. Like I said, they have persuaded me that this is the year of Jubilee. Can I say absolutely for sure? Ah, give me a couple days. Um, Leviticus chapter 25, verse 1. And the Lord spoke to Moses on Mount Sinai, saying, again, these are words right from the lips of God. Matthew 4, 4, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, when you come into the land which I give you, then the land shall keep a Sabbath to the Lord. Six years you shall sow your field, and six years you shall prune your vineyard and gather its fruit. But in the seventh year, there should be a Sabbath of solemn rest for the land, a Sabbath to the Lord. You shall neither sow your field nor prune your vineyard. What do we call that seventh year? Shemitah or the Sabbath year. How many times did Israel fail to keep the Sabbath year? Seventy times, which is why they went into captivity in Babylon for 70 years. To let the land rest for the 70 Sabbath years, they had not let it rest. But anyway, verse 5. What grows of its own accord of your harvest you shall not reap, which means you can't take it and put it in your barn. Nor gather the grapes of your untended vine. You can't take them and go put them in your grape storage facility to make grape juice. For it's a year of rest for the land. So does what grows of its own accord get wasted? No, anyone, Jew or Gentile alike, can go out into that field, any day except Shabbat, of course, and gather food for the day, gather grapes for the day. That's for six. And the Sabbath produce of the land shall be food for you. For you, your male and female servants, your hired man, and the what? Stranger who dwells with you, the Gerhashar, that's the believing Gentile. For your livestock and the beasts that are in your land, all its produce shall be for food. You shall count seven Sabbaths of yours for yourself. Anybody know what seven times seven is? Forty-nine. Seven times seven years, and the time of the seven Sabbaths of yours shall be to you forty-nine years. See, God can do math too. 
Then you shall cause the trumpet of the Jubilee to sound on the tenth day of the seventh month. So there's a special trumpet called the trumpet of the Jubilee that sounds on Yom Kippur in a year of Jubilee. On the Day of Atonement, you shall make the trumpet to sound throughout all your land. You shall consecrate the 50th year and listen to the description of that 50th year and proclaim liberty throughout all the land to its inhabitants, meaning everyone is set free. If you've been a slave for 39 or 49 years on this day, you're set free. It says, it shall be a jubilee for you, and each of you shall return to his possession, and each of you shall return to his family. That 50th year shall be a jubilee to you, in it you shall neither sow nor reap what grows of its own accord, nor gather the grapes of your untended vine, for it is the year of jubilee. It shall be holy to you. In other words, there's something different about a year of jubilee that sets it apart unto God, makes it different, sanctifies it. And by the way, as I've just learned recently, the 50th year is also the first year of the next Shabbat cycle, the next Shemitah cycle. It says, in this year of jubilee, each of you shall return to his possession. And if you sell anything to your neighbor or buy from your neighbor's hand, you shall not oppress one another. According to the number of years after the jubilee, you shall buy from your neighbor. According to the number of crops, he shall sell to you. So if I sell my land to you on the, in the year of jubilee, it comes back to me. I cannot permanently dispossess myself of the land. Because ultimately, who does the land of Israel belong to? It belongs to God. What does it mean to afflict our souls? Let's take just a moment and look at that. Go to Isaiah chapter 58. To answer the question, why do we fast on Yom Kippur? That's included in the afflict our souls. But why do we fast? When we eat, is it enjoyable? Is it pleasurable? Yeah, you do it for the sustainment of your body. You do it for you. It's for me. But when you fast, you deny yourself, you do it for God. It's to put our whole focus on getting right standing before our true and living God. How many days did Messiah fast for you and me? Forty. How many does he ask us to fast for him? One. Okay. Isaiah chapter 58 verse, verse 3 says, why have we fasted, they say, and you have not seen? Why have we afflicted our souls, and you take no notice? That's Hebrew parallelism. What is parallel to fasted? Afflicted our souls. He says, in fact, the day of your fast, you find pleasure and exploit all your laborers. In other words, they're pretending to fast, but they're not. Isaiah 58, verse 5. Is it a fast that I have chosen a, man, a day for a man to afflict his soul? What does God call there a fast? A day to afflict his soul. 
Is it to bow down his head like a bulrush and to spread out sackcloth and ashes? Would you call this a fast and an acceptable day to the Lord? Ah. Remember in Leviticus 25, looking at the year of Jubilee, we, we saw that phrase about the acceptable day. Here we see that acceptable day again. Talking about Yom Kippur. Isaiah chapter 58, verse 10. If you extend your soul to the hungry and satisfy the afflicted soul. What do you know there about the afflicted soul? It's hungry. Yeah, okay. So I couldn't sit there and talk about donuts and bagels and cream cheese, but I won't. We will instead go on to Numbers chapter 29. Numbers chapter 29. There are sacrifices for the Day of Atonement. Numbers 29. You might say, yeah, we just read about them in Leviticus chapter 16. Yeah, but there's more. Numbers 29, verses 7 through 11. Numbers 29, verses 7 to 11. On the tenth day of this seventh month, you shall have a holy convocation that is a rehearsal of something Messiah will do. You shall afflict your souls. You shall not do any work. You shall present a burnt offering to the Lord as a sweet aroma, one young bull, one ram, and seven lambs in the first year. Be sure they are without blemish. Their grain offering shall be a fine flour mixed with oil, three-tenths of an ephah for the bull, two-tenths for the one ram, and one-tenth for each of the seven lambs. Also one kid of the goats is a sin offering, besides the sin offering for atonement, the regular burnt offering with its grain offering and their drink offerings. You know, there's something else that's unique about a year of Jubilee. Let's go to Ezekiel chapter 40. Not Exodus chapter 40, but Ezekiel chapter 40. Uh, of all the things I've lost, I miss my mind the most. Ezekiel chapter 40. There's something special about the year of Jubilee. Ezekiel chapter 40, verse 1. In the 25th year of our captivity, that's the captivity in Babylon, and it is a year of jubilee. At the beginning of the year, that literally in Hebrew says, at Rosh Hashanah. Rosh Hashanah is normally the first day of the year, but not in a year of jubilee. On the 10th day of the month, in the 14th year after the city was captured, on the very same day, the hand of the Lord was upon me, and he took me there. So in a year of jubilee, Rosh Hashanah is delayed from Tishri 1 till Tishri 10. We keep seeing a holy convocation, something Messiah is going to do. Well, let's read about it. Let's go to the book of Matthew. 
chapter 3. Verse 1. Matthew chapter 3, verse 1. In those days, it doesn't tell us what days. It's the 40 days of Teshuva, going from Alua 1, and it ends on Yom Kippur. John the Baptist came preaching in the Willis Judean, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Meaning, repent, get your souls right, in case this is the year that the Lord establishes the kingdom. Now, go forward in the same chapter to verse 13. Then Yeshua came from Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized by him. And John tried to prevent him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and are you coming to me? But Yeshua answered and said to him, Permit it to be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Three points. One, Messiah had no sin, so this baptism wasn't about repenting from sin. But number two, we read in Leviticus 16 that the high priest must do a mikvah before he carries out the, the um, duties of Yom Kippur. And also every priest must undergo the mikvah before they begin their ministry as a priest. This is a change in status. Messiah is about to turn 30. At 30, he enters into his ministry. He becomes the high priest, so he undergoes the mikvah. And the third point is, see that, those words, to fulfill? That's the verb plurao. The same one that in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, the traditional church means he abolished the commandments. Did he abolish all righteousness? No. Y'all go, hey, that's just silliness. Yes, it is, so let's get on with it. Verse 16, when he'd been baptized, Yeshua came up immediately from the water. Behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting upon him. And suddenly a voice came from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Then what does he do? Chapter 4, verse 1. Then Yeshua was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. When he had fasted for 40 days and 40 nights. If he's immersed on the first day of Teshuvah of repentance... What is the 40th day? Yom Kippur. So he's fasted for 40 days and 40 nights, and afterward he was hungry. How many of you have ever fasted for 40 days? Not me either. He was hungry. That's when Satan comes to tempt him. And he responds with what? Every time Satan throws a temptation at him, how does he respond? with scripture. Any particular scripture does he prefer? From Deuteronomy. Yeah, interesting. Verse 17. From that time Yeshua began to preach and say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Let's go to Luke chapter 4. Luke picks up with something Matthew omitted. When the temptation is over, Satan is defeated. Verse 16. So he came to Nazareth, 
where he had been brought up. Oh, I heard a teaching this week that kind of broke my heart because it was somebody that I really thought would have known better. It was called, I think, the verse that's not in the Bible. And it referred to the fact that Messiah, it says in the scripture, that the prophet said he would be called a Nazarene. And they were saying, but there isn't any scripture anywhere that said he would be a Nazarene. But there is, and where is it? Keep a finger here. We'll come back to Luke. Go back to Isaiah chapter 11. Sorry, I know I can chase Ibex with the best of them. <laughs> Isaiah 11.1. 1. There shall come forth a rod. It's actually a shoot, a little bitty shoot. From the stem of Jesse, it's not a stem, it's the stump. It looks like the tree's been cut down, referring to the Davidic throne. And a branch shall grow out of his roots. See how the bee is capitalized? Messiah is referred to as the branch many times in the Bible. But everywhere else, the word is zamak. Here, the word is netzer. Netzer tov, good branch, is where you get the name Nazareth. So this is where it prophesies he will be a Nazarene, one from Nazareth. That's what Nazarene means. Okay, back to Luke chapter 4. Verse 16, so when he had come to Nazareth, to the good branch, where he had been brought up, as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. So what day is it? It's Shabbat. It's also Yom Kippur. And the reading for Yom Kippur back in those days included Isaiah chapter 61. Look at verse 17. And he was handed the book of the prophet Isaiah. When he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Yep, think back to the baptism. Because he has anointed me. The anointed one is what Messiah means in English. To preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives. That is the theme of which day? Yom Kippur. To proclaim liberty to the captives and recover his sight to the blind. To set at liberty those who are oppressed and to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Did we not see the acceptable year twice now? Once in Leviticus, once in Isaiah. In reference to Yom Kippur. Okay, let us carry on to the book of John. Now, first Hebrews. Hebrews. In case somebody's trying to follow my notes, I gotta take an ibex through. Hebrews nine, verses eleven to twenty-eight. The high priest carrying out the Day of Atonement ceremony was only a picture, a prophecy, a foretelling of what Messiah would do for us. Verse 11, but Messiah came as high priest of the good things to come with the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands that is not of this creation. That is critical to understand what's going on. Yeshua was not a Levitical priest. Y'all know that. 
He did not serve in the temple on earth. He is a priest of the order of Melchizedek. His priesthood is in heaven. The laws in the temple in heaven are different than the laws in the temple on earth. The things on earth are a copy, are a picture. Okay. So Messiah is the high priest, not on earth, it says, but in the heavenly temple. Verse 12, not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood he entered the most holy place, the Kodesh HaKodeshim, once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. So in that temple in heaven, there is a holy of holies. In the holy of holies, there is an Ark of the Covenant. On the Ark of the Covenant, Messiah put not animal blood, but his blood. So what day did he do that? Not Yom Kippur. Yom Kippur is the date that the earthly high priest put blood on the copies of the things in heavens. It was at the time of Passover and unleavened bread that he put the blood. There are people out there right now teaching in the Messianic community that it's not necessary to recognize the festivals on their appointed times. Because they say, well, Messiah, he did the Leviticus 16 Yom Kippur service, and it wasn't Yom Kippur. No, that wasn't what he was doing. The scriptures specifically tell us that the heavenly temples are governed by different laws than the earthly temples. Okay, so in verse 12, he didn't go into the Holy of Holies on earth. It's the one in heaven. He didn't put blood of goats or bulls on the mercy seat. He put his own blood, and he didn't do it every year. He did it once, having obtained eternal redemption, not eternal atonement. Atonement is a covering over. His was eternal redemption. The price has been paid. It is finished. It is done. Verse 13, For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean, sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Messiah, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. The dead works are the sins. Let his blood cleanse you of your sin. Turn away from it. Repent from it. Walk in sin no more, but walk in righteousness. And for this reason, he is the mediator of the new covenant. The terms of the new covenant are in Jeremiah 31. In the new covenant, the Torah, the law, the commandment, statutes, and judgments of God are not abolished. They're written on the heart. It becomes our desire to do them. Messiah said, if you love me, keep my commandments. We keep it not out of fear of death. We keep it out of love for our Messiah who died for us to set us free. It says, by means of death, for the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant, the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant. <coughs> On the first covenant in Leviticus 16, the blood covered over. I said, when God looks down, he sees not the sin but the blood until Messiah would come and what? take it away. Messiah's death was for the redemption of all those sins that had been covered over by the animal's blood. It deferred God's judgment until Messiah. That those who are called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. 
And where there is a testament, there must also necessity be the death of the testator. Who died that we may live? Yeshua did. For a testament is in force after men are dead, since it has no power at all while the testator lives. Therefore, not even the first covenant was dedicated without blood. Moses in the wilderness sprinkled what with blood? The book. The Ark of the Covenant. The tabernacle and the people. But that was with animal blood. What blood is put against our account? Yeshua's blood. Verse 19, for when Moses had spoken every precept to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of calves and goats with water, scarlet wool and hyssop, and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, this is the blood of the covenant which God has commanded you. Then likewise he sprinkled with blood both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the sanctuary. And according to the Torah, almost all things are purified with blood. Without shedding of blood, there is no remission. You and I don't have an earthly temple today. That is what perplexed the Jewish people after the destruction of the temple. You realize there were two groups of people and they went two different ways. The believers went to where? Pella. The unbelievers went to Yavne. And the unbelieving Jews went to Yavne and said, now what do we do? We don't have a temple. They said, we will substitute for the shedding of blood prayers and good works. Does the scripture say that things are purified by prayers and good works? No. Without the shedding of blood, no remission of sins. So the group that went to Pella and Jordan, who were believers, said, our blood was shed on Calvary's tree. It needs to be shed how many times? Once. Verse 27, but as it is appointed for men to die once, but after this the judgment, so Messiah was offered once to bear the sins of many. To those who eagerly wait for him. How many of you eagerly wait for him? There's a special crown for that. Remember that. He will appear a second time, apart from sin, for salvation. Daniel's going to talk more about that. Our Bibles tend to say, you have been saved. But the verses underneath say, you are being saved. And there's a big difference. So please don't miss Daniel's teaching. It's going to be a good one. Now back to John chapter 20. John chapter 20. Messiah did not do. Oops, I got a question out there. Let's see. Oh, Susie, I think your mic is on. Okay, I'm turning it off. Okay. Messiah did not do the Leviticus 16. Um, what should I call it? The Leviticus 16 event. That's not a good word for it, but I'll do. It'll, it'll, I'll take it. It'll do. But there are some things that are common. So sometimes people think he was doing the Leviticus 16 ceremony. He was not. When the high priest would carry the, <coughs> the blood up to the Holy of Holies, he would say, do not touch me. 
for I have not yet ascended to the Father. See what Messiah says in John chapter 20. Remember, Messiah was a very loving person. He allowed the ladies even to wash his feet with tears and dry them with their hair. And yet, in John chapter 20, verse 11, we read, But Mary stood outside by the tomb, weeping. And as she wept, she stooped down and looked into the tomb. She saw two angels in white sitting, one at the head and the other at the feet where the body of Yeshua had lain. Why are they doing that? Why are they doing that? Because otherwise it's pitch black and you couldn't see what's going on and the angels glow white. So they are showing, indicating that this is where he laid. Then he said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, because they have taken away my Lord and I do not know where they've laid them. She thinks what? Somebody stole the body? I assure you that wasn't going to happen. Because what was put across that rolling stone? A seal, a Roman seal. If you go today to the garden tomb in Jerusalem, you can see they have found the spot where the Roman seal was attached. And there's no record of a Roman seal having been put on any other tomb. So it really is the tomb. Now when she had said this, she turned around and saw Yeshua standing there and did not know it was Yeshua. Why not? She knew him very well. Because nobody turned on the street lights. It's dark. It's pitch black. Yeshua said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? She, supposing him to be the gardener, said to him, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've laid him, and I'll take him away. Yeshua said to her, Mary. You know, it's just like that. Mary. She turned and said to him, Rabboni, which is Aramaic for rabbi. They say, which is to say teacher. Yeshua said to her, do not cling to me. Do not nag me means do not touch me. For I have not yet ascended to my father. It is to tell us like with the Levitical 16 ceremony, no one could help the high priest do that. Because that was a picture of the fact that no one can help Messiah save us. You can't help him. I can't help him. No one can help him. He says, but go to my brethren and say to them, I'm ascending to my father and your father and to my God and your God. Did you have a point there, Daniel? No. Okay, let's keep going then. Let's go to a prophetic application to Joel chapter 2. Joel chapter 2 is the only place I can think of that describes in great detail the tribulation period. Not the only place that describes it, but it's in great detail. Somebody mentioned earlier, Raiders of the Lost Ark. Yeah, okay. That comes from Zechariah 14 and Joel 2. Joel 2. The day of the Lord begins with the sounding of the trumpet at Yom Teruah. That's verse 1. Blow the trumpet in Zion and sound an alarm in my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming, for it is at hand. What's it mean? The day of the Lord is coming, it's at hand. It's here. It just started. Is it bad? Oh, it's bad. Look at verse 6. Before then, the people writhe in pain. 
All faces are drained of color. Look at verse 10. The earth quakes before them. The heavens tremble. The sun and moon grow dark. And the stars diminish their brightness. And then they ask a very good question. Verse 11. The Lord gives voice before his army, for his camp is very great, for strong is the one who executes his word. For the day of the Lord is great and very terrible. Who can endure it? There is an answer to that question. It's not no one. Verse 12. Now therefore, says the Lord, turn to me. What's turn mean? Repent. Turn to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning. So rend your heart, that circumcision of the heart, and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful. That's who can endure those who come to faith in the tribulation period. But verse 15 is Yom Kippur. Blow the trumpet in Zion, consecrate a fast. What's the only fast day commanded by God? It's Yom Kippur. This is Messiah about to return for Armageddon. Consecrate a fast. Call a sacred assembly. That's a concluding assembly. Gather the people. Sanctify the congregation. Assemble the elders. Gather the children nursing babes. Let the bridegroom go out from his chamber. Who's the bridegroom? That's Messiah. And the bride from her dressing room. Who's that? That's the raptured and resurrected saints. Messiah is about to return. Verse 18, then the Lord will be zealous for his land and pity his people. He intervenes in the battle of Armageddon and brings it to an end. Let's go back to Matthew chapter 24. Matthew 24 is about the day of atonement, Yom Kippur, the day Messiah returns. What's the first thing that happens after the rapture and resurrection is the first seal gets opened. The first seal is verse 5. For many will come my name saying, I'm the Messiah and will deceive many. Verses 6 and 7 contain seals 2, 3, and 4. Verse 9 is seal 5, etc. Verse 15 is 30 days before the midpoint of the tribulation period. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, saying in the holy place, whoever reads let him understand, let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. They will go out to Petra. You've heard me teach on that many times. So we're at the midpoint. When we come to verse 29, we've come to the end of it. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be dark and the moon will not give its light. Remember that from Joel 2? And the stars will fall from heaven. The powers of heavens will be shaken. And the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven. Then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. That's Zechariah 12.10. What does it say? And they shall look upon me whom they pierced. And mourn for him as one mourns for an only son. Zechariah 12.10. And we'll see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. He will send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet. That's the shofar hagadol. On which day does that great trumpet sound? Yom Kippur. And they will gather together his elect from the four winds, from one wind of heaven to the other. Now learn this parable from the fig tree. When its branches already become tender, puts forth its leaves, you know that summer is near. 
So you also, when you see all these things, know that it is near or he is near. In Hebrew, there is no it. It's only he or she. At the doors. And all the ancient church fathers tell us that Matthew was written originally in Hebrew. Assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away until all these things take place. This generation, the last generation, is from Psalm 48. The generation that saw Israel reestablished as a nation is the last generation. The Hebrew there says, Lador Acharon, the last generation. Psalm chapter 90 tells us that that generation is 70 to 80 years. And then we shall fly away. How many years of those 80 are left right now? Seven. So if it includes the tribulation period, which is how long? Seven, Seven years. Then let's keep looking up for our redemption draws nigh. Let's go to Daniel chapter 7, which also tells us about Messiah's return at the Day of Atonement. Daniel chapter 7, verses 11 to 14. Verses 8 to 10 are about Yom Kippur. No. Yom Teruah. It's 11 to 14 that are about Yom Kippur, but they look so much alike. Only in the fact that there's thrones. For judgment. Verses 9 and 10, that's the Bema Seat judgment for believers. But in Yom Kippur, that's verses 11 to 14. I watched then because of the sound of the pompous words which the horn was speaking. That horn is the Antichrist, false messiah, or beast of Revelation 13. Those pompous words are words of blasphemy against God. I watched till the beast was slain and his body destroyed and given to the burning flame. When does that happen? That happens at Battle of Armageddon, yeah. And the rest of the beast, they had their lives taken away, yet their lives were prolonged for a season at a time. And then we review that same material at the same time, but in greater detail here. I was watching in the night visions. So this is a vision, just like Isaiah 6. And behold, one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. That's Revelation 19.11. It's describing what happened to the beast. One like the Son of Man, which is our Messiah Yeshua, coming with the clouds of heaven. That's us. He came to the ancient of days, and they brought him near before him. They gave, and then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away in his kingdom, the one which shall not be destroyed. That's describing the Day of Atonement. So in Revelation 19.11, there's even more detail given in Revelation 19.11. Revelation 19.11. Now I saw heaven open, and behold. What's behold mean? Shut up and listen. This is really important. Don't miss this. A white horse. 
anciently, if a king came in peace, he came riding on a donkey. If he's coming for war, he's riding a horse. Messiah came the first time riding a donkey, not this time. And he who sat in him was called faithful and true. That's Isaiah 11.4. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire. Fire pictures judgment. And on his head were many crowns. Where did he get those crowns? We cast them before him, right? In Revelation chapters 4 and 5. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. So please don't send me an email to say what is it. I don't know yet. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood. What did they wrap around a man's head in the first century when he was buried? His tallit. He had many head wounds. This robe dipped in blood is the tallit that was wrapped around his head at his burial. The blood he shed for you and me at Calvary. And his name is called the Word of God. That's John 1.1. 1, 1. The beginning was the Word. The Word was with God and the Word was God. And how many times does it say in the Old Testament, and the word of the Lord came to me saying. Mm -hmm. And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, linen, white and clean, those are not angels, that's us, the raptured and resurrected saints, followed him on white horses. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword that with it he should strike the nations. The word nations means Gentiles. All the nations have come against Jerusalem, as it says in Zechariah 14. He himself shall rule them with the rod of iron. That's Psalm 2 and Isaiah 11. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Somebody said to me once, that means he has a tattoo. No. No. At the corner of the tallit, the prayer shawl or the tzitzit. They're tied in such a way to represent four Hebrew letters, yod heh vav -he, and it lays across the thigh. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried with a loud voice, saying to all the birds that fly in the midst of heaven, Come and gather together for the supper of the great God. What are they going to feast upon? The dead bodies. Armageddon's right here. That you may eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses, and of those who sit on them, and the flesh of all people, free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast, that's the false messiah. The kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against him who sat on his horse and against his army. And the beast was captured, and within the false prophet who worked signs in his presence which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were cast alive into the lake of fire, burning with brimstone. And the rest were killed with the sword, proceeded from the mouth of him, and sat on the horse, and all the birds were filled with their flesh. Let's go back to Zechariah 14, which also describes this same event. Zechariah 14, verse 1, which begins, Behold, the day of the Lord is coming, and your spoil will be divided in your midst. 
Why will they come against Israel? They want the spoil. They want the wealth. They want the riches. But Psalm 2 also tells us because they don't want Messiah to return. It says, for I will gather all the nations to battle against Jerusalem. Oh my. I wish it said all the nations except the United States, but it doesn't say that. The city shall be... What's that? What's your question, Mike? I just wish it said specifically that we're not there. But we understand that it doesn't mean everyone. Correct. Does not necessarily mean 100%. The city shall be taken, the houses rifled, and the women ravished. Half the city shall go into captivity, but the remnant of the people shall not be cut off from the city. Here's Yom Kippur. Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as he fights in the day of battle. And on that day his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which faces Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall be split in two, from east to west, making a very large valley. Half of the mountain shall move toward the north, half of it toward the south. Then you shall flee through my mountain valley, for the mountain valley shall reach to Azal. That's where they would push off the scapegoat. Mm -hmm. Yes, you shall flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Thus the Lord my God will come. What are they calling Yeshua there? The Lord my God will come. And all the saints with you. It shall come to pass in that day that there will be no light. Just like Joel 2 said. The lights will diminish. It shall be one day which is known to the Lord. It's known to the Lord. Which is neither day nor night. But at evening time it shall happen that it will be light. The Jewish sages say that light refers to the light of salvation. Mm -hmm. That that is the point that all Israel shall be saved, as Isaiah 11 tells us. Our time grows short. One thing that I rarely do is read from liturgy. But as you know, on Yom Kippur, there's some liturgy I like to read. So I'm going to read a prayer called al which means for the sin. Today's a day of repentance, a day to think about, have I committed any of these sins? For the sin we have committed against you willingly or under compulsion. And for the sin we have committed against you by hardening our hearts. For the sin we have committed against you by acting without thinking. And for the sin we have committed against you by speaking perversely. For the sin we have committed against you through sexual impurity. And for the sin we have committed against you secretly and openly. For the sin we have committed against you knowingly and deceitfully. And for the sin we have committed against you by offensive speech. For the sin we have committed against you by wronging our neighbor. And for the sin we have committed against you by sinful meditation of the heart. For the sin we have committed against you by lewd association. And for the sin we have committed against you by insincere confession. For the sin we have committed against you by spurning parents and teachers. And for the sin we have committed against you in presumption or in error. 
For the sin we have committed against you by violence. And for the sin we have committed against you by profaning your name. For the sin we have committed against you by unclean speech. And for the sin we have committed against you by foolish talk. For the sin we have committed against you through the evil inclination. And for the sin we have committed against you knowingly and unknowingly. For all these sins, O God of forgiveness, forgive us and pardon us in Yeshua's name. For the sin we have committed against you by denying and lying. For the sin we've committed against you by bribery. For the sin we've committed against you by scoffing. And for the sin we have committed against you by slander. For the sin we have committed against you in our business dealings. And for the sin we have committed against you in eating and drinking. For the sin we have committed against you by demanding usurious interest. And for the sin we have committed against you by arrogance and pride. For the sin we have committed against you by speaking gossip. And for the sin we have committed against you by wanton glances. For the sin we have committed against you with haughty eyes. And for the sin we have committed against you by insolence. For all these sins, O God of forgiveness, forgive us and pardon us in Yeshua's name. For the sin we have committed against you by rejecting responsibility. And for the sin we have committed against you by contentiousness. For the sin we have committed against you by ensnaring our neighbor. And for the sin we have committed against you by envy. For the sin we have committed against you by levity. And for the sin we have committed against you by being stiff-necked. For the sin we have committed against you by running to do evil. And for the sin we have committed against you by tail-bearing. For the sin we have committed against you by vain oaths. And for the sin we have committed against you by hatred without a cause. For the sin we have committed against you by breach of trust. And for the sin we have committed against you with confusion of mind. For all these sins, O God of forgiveness, forgive us and pardon us in Yeshua's name. We have trespassed. We have dealt deceitfully. We have stolen. We have slandered. We have acted perversely. We have done wrong. We have acted presumptuously and we have been violent. We have spoken lies. We have counseled evil. We have spoken falsely and we have blasphemed. We have scoffed. We have rebelled. We have provoked and we have oppressed. We have been stiff-necked. We have corrupted. We have gone astray and we have led others astray. But if we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, says 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. And with that, let's close in prayer.